Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Science to Suits. Today, we have our closing episode in our entrepreneurship series, and we I can think of none better guests than uh, our guest today, Derek Miller. He's a serial entrepreneur with a wealth of experience, both in established pharma and biotech, as well as earlier stage ventures. He's carved out a niche for himself uh, with platform technologies, and thus far has been the chief business officer for two successful uh, startups, Celator Pharmaceuticals and Aerobiotherapeutics, where he had commercial strategy roles. Derek, can you just give us a little introduction to yourself? How did you get here? Oh, well, thanks, first of all, for having me. I appreciate the, the opportunity to speak with you and, and uh, those that are really interested in kind of marrying science to business, which is quite frankly how I got here. I've been, as you said, I've been in the biotech industry for about 30 years now, um, believe it or not. And I originally started off working for a small startup biotech doing recombinant DNA um, technology uh, transfer and scale up of that process. And, you know, over the years, continued to move, you know, throughout different organizations on that path. And quite frankly, realized that I, I always had a penchant for an interest in, in business. So when I went back to get my MBA, I actually really thought the time was going to be uh, spent helping me figure out how to how to like run some of these facilities, if you will, that were doing you know these pilot plant facilities. But but during my education, I just fell in love with the whole um, idea of marketing and international marketing and strategy and positioning. And so I've always been searching for ways to combine my science background with my 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 business interests. Um, so, so I, I followed that path. I've worked in labs. I've worked on products in all different phases of development from, from, you know, discovery all the way through to launch and even those that are off patent and are just contracted sales. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been a fun, it's been a fun ride. Yeah. Th thanks for the introduction and yeah, definitely, definitely a wealth of experience. And I think a lot of our audience and speaking for Jarek and ourselves, we definitely share the similar interest of trying to marry that technical with that with that business. And given that this is uh, the closing episode of this uh, ongoing series on entrepreneurship, uh, we think of this episode focusing a bit on exits. But could you help us define what what is an exit, at least in this context, for a biopharmaceutical company? So I, I think when you're an entrepreneur, you need to think about exits in maybe two simple ways. I think the most obvious way is through mergers and acquisition, right? So, you know, you get yourself to a certain point and, and ultimately another company buys, buys you out. Um, an, another way to think about an exit is through, let's say, an IPO. And, and, and both of those exits, if you will, have various iterations. What I mean by that is both can... Um, allow you to exit out both in terms of your equity position as well as your management stake, or they may allow you to keep equity, but back away from your management responsibilities. And even in an M&A situation, you can retain some equity and retain some role in the company. It all depends on, on, on how you want to do that. So there's an exit from an entrepreneurial standpoint, and there's an exit that you often hear about from an investor standpoint. But I would say generally it's through the company being completely taken over and control and, and equity and ownership through another entity, or you just sort of capitalizing yourself and, and managing the company through different um, different channels. Okay. So if, if I could try and summarize that, there's a transfer of equity, probably the majority of the equity from one group to a, a variety of possible groups. Is that fair? 
Yes, that or it could be, you know, you know, like the, the deal we did, for example, with Celator was we were, we became a wholly owned subsidiary of Jazz Pharmaceuticals. And Derek, in talking about these end goals and exits, two terms we hear about on the company side are business development and commercial strategy. Can you help us understand what these terms mean for life science startups? Sure. And, and it's a great question, Jared, because oftentimes those are used interchangeably. And at times it makes sense for that to, to be the case. But the way I, I sort of think about it is when I think about business development, um, I'm thinking about sort of a, a two-way potential transaction, meaning that I could be looking as a business development uh, executive to in-license either an asset or a, a complementary technology platform for what I'm doing. Um, to make what we're doing, you know, better or or more complete, um, or I could be looking to take one of my assets or my platform and either license it out exclusively or sublicense it to them. So it's really sort of a matter of how you're going to either build your company, your platform, or you're going to allow others to build, and that's sort of the, the the BD on the commercial strategy side. I think about that more in terms of products and services. So think about a therapeutic that you're developing. Um, you know, you need to be thinking about exactly, um, you know, sort of the four P's, how you're going to, you know, what your product is, what meet, uh, what, what need it's going to, it's going to fulfill, um, how you're going to position the product, where it's going to be placed and how you're going to price it. Um, and so when you think about commercial strategy for biotech, you really need to be thinking about, particularly in this day and age, what your value proposition is going to be. And that value prop is meant to be addressing several key stakeholders' specific needs, whether it's a payer, it's a provider, or it's an investor. You're thinking about, about each of their respective needs. So how does uh, these two terms, business development and commercial strategy, how do they play out in practice? Um, for, for example, like, uh, what stages of a life science startup are these activities being considered? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And it's, it's something that I've been focusing on a lot now in more of my consulting roles. Um, I would say generally for new life science startups, founders often think more about a business development type of role, a traditional business development role where they're looking for partners to maybe bring in non-dilutive capital, you know, to advance the platform, um, you know, maybe carving out a niche for their own product where someone else can can take it and, and run with it. And, and I think that happens uh, very early on in companies, oftentimes CBO roles in early companies. When I mean early, I mean even pre-clinical or early clinical um, are focused on financing and business development. But what I really think makes a lot of sense is once an asset enters the clinic, and you need to really start thinking about what that target product profile needs to look like and how receptive the market's going to be to that profile and where you may need to tweak that or build in different types of endpoints, health economic or clinical. That's when I think commercial really needs to be brought into play. And I mean, a real traditional commercial view. And I generally think that happens somewhere between end of phase one and phase two. Um, because once you're starting to develop your phase two protocol, you really need to start thinking about, you know, that profile and what's going to make it compelling, what's going to make it competitive 
and what's going to really drive value for all of the key stakeholders. So I think BD typically comes first. I think commercial generally comes later. Yeah, I think what would really help here too is also the the tangible example of your experience, for example, with Celator. So can you give us an idea of where were they before you walked in the door? For example, where in the development process and was there a commercial team in place or BD team? And Derek, do you mind also introducing Celator to our audience too? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll be happy to do that. So Celator um, was a company, I mentioned it earlier, was acquired by Jazz in 2016, but it was founded and spun out of the British Columbia Cancer Agency in 2000, I'm sorry, in 1999. So, you know, it, it's, it's always a running joke with, with uh, the former Celator employees who say, who, who, who hear, oh, you were an overnight success. And we say, yes, it was a 17-year overnight success. So, so the company was developing a unique platform that they called Comboplex. And in, essentially, it took an old technology platform, liposomes, and they coupled that with the ability to identify um, additive or synergistic ratios of two or more chemotherapies. And, and this was the liposomes were used to, to lock in or control that synergistic or additive ratio so that once it was delivered, that pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic profile was preserved until it reached the target. Because oftentimes you give combination therapy separately and they have very different PK and PD. And if they're not at the same place at the same time, they're not, you're not going to get the additive or synergistic benefit you're looking for in that combo. This was a way to do that. So the company was run out of um, Vancouver for a while, eventually moved their offices down to Princeton. And when I joined the company in 2013, it was literally one month after the company was listed on NASDAQ. They had a, an asset um, with this complex technology platform in a phase three clinical trial. The phase three was probably about 20% enrolled when I joined. So still a couple of years out till that, that phase three readout. They had advanced another asset into the clinic for a different application, but same technology. But they, they decided to abandon that one or put that in the back burner and focus on, on a, an asset that was referred to as CPX351. So when I joined the company, as I mentioned earlier, my co-primary objectives were to figure out how do we position and successfully commercialize that asset. The other uh, you know, objective was how can we identify and find a viable partner for that asset? Again, in ex-US markets, we felt we can commercialize this ourselves in the US. And the third component of this was what else do we do with it? You know, what, what next trick do we have up our sleeve with this technology platform? Because we saw CPX351, which is now, excuse me, now on the market as Vixios and is for uh, secondary acute myelogenous leukemia, it's FDA approved. We saw that as sort of the tip of the spear. It was the proof of concept for the platform, but we wanted to then follow that up with additional applications of that platform. So I worked very closely with this chief scientific officer and, and his team to figure out what the best path was to further exploit that, that platform. So hopefully that gives some, some background, but there was no commercial team uh, in place when I joined, nor when I left, I was the commercial team and I was the BD department. I did all of the outreach to companies uh, to see if I could solicit interest, both in the asset as well as in the technology platform. 
And and Derek, something I've been curious about, always you know, reading on Endpoints News about deals and such. Is there, for example, a preconceived notion about yes, we'd we'd like to exit or be acquired, or are you just in the trenches making uh, the value proposition and somebody happens to notice and it happens serendipitously? It's or is it both? So I'll share with you sort of a quote from my former CEO, and and he he was of the mindset, and I agree with him that companies should be built to be acquired, not to be sold. Mm. And what's meant by that is if you build a compelling story and you build a strong value proposition, you should be able to fund that enough to do it your own, but also attract outsiders to want a piece of that. Because if you create value, then you can you're in a better position to drive your own destiny of whether it's going to be an M&A or partnership or a a fully integrated biotech that you're going to run on your own. Yeah. And can you tell us a bit more about what, like, what is the process like of creating that value? For example, at Celator, what was, how did you go about positioning this platform? How did you decide on what indication on that synergistic profile of the Donna Rubison and Citarabine? I think it was. Um, Yeah. Yeah. How did you, how did you do that? Was it a, a lot of diligence and talking to stakeholders? Yeah, there there was a lot of that. I I think that the best advice I can I can I can kind of share with your listeners is follow the science. At that early stage, you really need to follow the science. I think oftentimes entrepreneurs can be looking and investors may be looking for where the largest market is, where the biggest patient population is, or just quite frankly, where they think there's a, a, a big unmet need or where you can be disruptive. Um, but at the end of the day, you still need to have successful clinical trials. I think in the case of of Celator, um, as I alluded to earlier, there was a choice to be made between investing in future assets that didn't even exist yet, but using the platform, moving forward with CPX351. And there was another asset I mentioned that had done um, gotten to phase two in, in colorectal cancer. And I think what, it, what ended up happening is, is we really did follow the science here. There was... Um, there were a couple of things in play. One, we needed to think about what the future landscape of therapy looked like. In the case of colorectal cancer, for example, uh, there was a, already a standard of care included monoclonal antibodies. And so to advance an asset that was chemotherapy based in a monoclonal antibody saturated market really required a very different development path and plan and timing. Uh, in the case of, of CPEX351, that was a market that hadn't seen a new therapy in 40 years, still predominantly using um, consolidation chemotherapy uh, with the intent of getting into um, transplant. And so there was a much straighter line. The trade-off there was it was very risky because, as I mentioned, there had been a lot of failures in that AML space. In fact, they analysts called AML the graveyard of drug development. And so it was a risky move, but there was enough science that was um, demonstrated in two randomized controlled phase two studies that showed that there was something there. We just needed to be very, very thoughtful about the patient selection for those trials and exactly which patient population we're going after. And so there's a huge unmet need there. It matched up with our platform very nicely in terms of still being chemotherapy dominated. And also we felt that we can 
get there with a relatively small study in the US that would get us our answer, good or bad, very quickly. So looking back at your time at Salator and helping get Salator to that major milestone of being acquired by Jazz, uh, were there any, let's say, uh, memorable surprises along the way? Biotech is nothing but surprises every day. Yes. Uh, and, and that's why I said earlier, you, you definitely have to, you, you have to, you have to plan and you have to scenario plan and you have to have a backup plan. And I think you need to do everything you can to kind of cover your bases. Things didn't always go uh, according to timing or plan. Um, and and I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example. We, we had a pretty good idea for our lead asset when we would have our readout. What we couldn't control is when companies would actually become interested. As I mentioned, we had initiated discussions around potential partnerships for XUS commercialization and clinical development for this asset. And I think common um, sort of common philosophy at that time was companies wouldn't really get that interested and meaning they wouldn't put together a diligence team and formally start evaluating the asset until you had that phase three asset. I'm sorry, the phase three readout. Well, it turned out that we had a final but interim readout probably eight or nine months prior, and it was planned as a pre-specified readout prior to the, the final phase three readout. And at that point, we had two interested partners that had put offers on the table. And that, that was that kind of flew against common sort of practice and wisdom that people would wait, um, uh, you know, for that path. They'd be willing to pay a little bit more to de-risk, in other words. In this case, there were some that were willing to take that risk earlier. Um, turns out in our case, it's a good thing that we did not follow through on that because the results were positive and we were able to, to command a much higher uh, price point, if you will, on the acquisition of the company at that stage. Why did you and Salator decide to not take on those two offers at that interim time point and wait for that final readout? Yeah, so, so what happened in this case was um, I think that uh, both, actually all the parties agreed essentially to, to as they say in, in the business, pencils down. And um, I, think, I think there was a, 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 a mutual agreement and understanding that you know, we should probably wait on our end from the seller side, we should wait till that data reads out, not, not just the interim data, but the final data and, and take that risk that it will be positive. And the companies that were involved, I think also felt that yes, even if that interim data is positive, it doesn't necessarily um, indicate that the final data is going to be positive. So I think they, they also decided we should wait. So I think I think all parties agreed that it made more sense. I was definitely in support or in the camp of waiting because I I had confidence that the data would read out positive just based on the signals that we had seen. It, it turned out to be the right move. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. So just pivoting a little bit here into your the next phase of your trajectory, uh, you're at Aero Biotherapeutics. Can you just tell us a little bit about your role there, maybe at a high level? What did you do? Absolutely. So there again, I was a, a, a chief business officer. Arrow um, at the time, and I think still is a, a privately held company. It's not on the public market. It was also spun out. Uh, this company was spun out of uh, Janssen Pharmaceuticals. 
where the similarities with Celator are is that it was a platform company. And, and but where it was dissimilar, it was they were very early. They uh, were still in the preclinical, almost in the discovery phase. So when I joined, there wasn't a there wasn't as much of a need for uh, commercial strategy as much as there was a need for corporate strategy. In other words, where do we want to focus our efforts? Um, you know, the downside of platform companies uh, is a, fra- a phrase I always use is, you know, you can run the, the, the risk of boiling the ocean. When you have so many different possible applications, the downfall of most companies is they can't focus. They have a hard time making a decision and sticking with it and following through and focusing because there's so much new information that's coming out constantly that is attractive and interesting. And, and as scientific founders, they generally want to follow the science wherever it leads them, but you have to pick a path and, and go there. So my job when I joined was to help them figure out where the best opportunities were to apply the platform. Where was the science most advanced? What was the market opportunity? What were some of the trade-offs in those markets? So I did a little bit of market analysis in terms of what the opportunity uh, was, what the competitive set looked like. Uh, and, and then, of course, you know, we spent a lot of time thinking about how do we position our company with investors and potential partners. So it was less about building a pure sort of typical commercial strategy and more a business plan for how we can fund the company, both, both through dilutive and non-dilutive means, and the non-dilutive would be through partnerships and where best do we partner. In order to figure that out, I worked with the scientific team to identify the most likely successful applications of the platform. There were multiple multitude of opportunities, but where do we think we had the best chance for success and we can get to that proof of principle quickly? Derek, you've touched upon how with platform companies, there comes the risk of trying to boil the entire ocean, so to speak. Can you speak more to that? Um, any nuances there? Sure. I think, you know, when, well, I'll follow up on the, on the boil the ocean and what, what that kind of looks like. Um, you know, in the case, for example, of, of Celator, I mentioned the technology was this platform called Comoplex, where you would encapsulate different drugs in the liposome. You could imagine the iterations of different combinations that are already proven in the clinic, but could be enhanced or that are being explored that haven't been fully vetted yet, are they're in the thousands. And, and so you have to figure out where, where can I start? You can't possibly grab, you know, a hundred different compounds and start mixing and matching and figuring out it's, it's there's, there's way too much work to do there. So you really have to think and follow the science, think about where, where your platform has the best chance for success. And so that's, you know, when I say boil the ocean, that, that's what I'm getting at. And I think Arrow is the same thing. If you think about all the different applications for antibodies, not just across therapeutic areas. So you have to figure out which therapeutic area is most conducive to this, but think about the different uses of antibodies. You have antibodies that are working as, you know, just themselves therapeutically with, with effector reasons, you have those that are used as antibody drug conjugates. There's so many different uses across so many different disease areas that you, you, know, you can't do it all. And it's just impossible. With the startup company, you're, you have to remember your resources are limited, which is, I think, an important point I'd want to convey. 
when we first started with, let's say, Arrow, um, what attracted me to that role was I thought the platform was exciting and I thought the licensing opportunities were endless. What I didn't fully appreciate at the time was that in order to support those possible license opportunities, we needed to have the infrastructure in place to do that. And with a small team of eight, 10, 12 scientists, you're very limited on how many of those partnerships you can take on. So when you're thinking about boiling the ocean or not boiling it, you have to think about it not just in terms of what you want to develop on your own and what you can support resource-wise, but also if you want to have a licensing strategy, what you can support externally as well. So as we wrap up our episode here, uh, given that our series has been targeted towards academic trainees, such as grad students and postdocs, many of the topics that we've covered today, for example, business development, commercial strategy, exits, I would say that uh, these topics are typically on the more foreign side for the average grad student or postdoc. And so what would be your advice then, Derek, for these academic trainees looking into exploring these activities in life science entrepreneurship? Yeah, I I would say my advice is don't try to do everything on your own. I mean, you, you really need to surround yourself with people who understand the various aspects of drug development, of drug manufacturing, of financing these companies, of developing drugs, um, and, and even in transacting in this space, whether it's through BD or, or some other means. Uh, and so there is, particularly in, in, in the Silicon Valley in the Philadelphia area, there is a tremendous amount of expertise. Uh, you know, this is just a rich area, uh, not just in, in, in terms of big pharma, but also in terms of startup biotechs. And, and you've got a wealth of talent to draw upon. So I would say, you know, it's really important to put together a group of advisors early on, um, both technical advisors and business advisors. I think that's absolutely critical. I think it's really important to think about your story. You know, you'll, you'll run into a lot of very sophisticated investors who can really get it, but you still need to be able to cut through all the noise of everything else they're evaluating with a crisp, simple, compelling story. And that has to be built upon a real value that you're bringing to the market. Just having something new and different isn't enough. And I'd say one of the biggest trappings I see um, sort of founder leaders in companies is the, if you build it, they will come mentality. And I, I would say you really need to avoid that. You may build something that looks great, but you need to make sure that there is a real need there. It's very differentiated and your value is clear. Well, Derek, uh, thank you so much for sharing your time with us and sharing your insights on really just how to create value and and that entire process. So once again, thanks. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, same here. And I'm very happy to, to join you any other time. And, and if there's any follow-up questions, uh, don't hesitate to reach out. Thank you for listening to our discussion with Derek Miller. We heard from Derek about positioning your life science startup for valuation, the business development and commercial strategy considerations along the way, and the exits available for life science startups. This episode concludes our series on the basics of life science entrepreneurship for academic trainees, and we hope that you have enjoyed it as much as we have. 
Science Suits is produced by the Penn Biotech Group, a graduate student organization at the University of Pennsylvania, connecting students with the life science industry. Visit our website at pennbiotechgroup.org and subscribe to our weekly newsletter to learn more about our events and resources. Thank you.